Good morning, everyone. I'm Joel. I offer my welcome with Rex, especially if you're new or joining us online. Um, We're in the Gospel of Luke, and today we come to chapter 21, verses 5 to 24. We are about to hear some words that will not impact us like it impacted the original hearers. Those first hearers being the disciples with Jesus in the temple. I want us to try to take at least a small step toward them by recalling a more recent event that took place on April 8, 1983. On April 8, 1983, David Copperfield stood in front of the Statue of Liberty on Ellis Island, and he said to a live audience there, it is so easy for us to lose our liberty. And to prove this, he was going to make the statue directly behind him disappear. What would you be thinking as a member of that live audience? I mean, this Lady Liberty has stood there for hundreds of years. More, it stands 305 feet tall and weighs 225 tons. That's 450,000 pounds. You're looking at this giant monument embodying America's identity as a free people. And Copperfield signals, and a curtain, which is between two large towers, is raised up. So you can no longer see Lady Lady Liberty. He's blocking off this massive monument. Copperfield then cues the music. He puts his hand to his head in deep, deep concentration. And moments later, he cues it to drop. And it's gone. The Statue of Liberty is gone. From the face of the earth. You would all be stunned. Even though deep down inside you would know this is just an illusion. Friends, Jesus is about to declare to his disciples that he is going to disappear the temple in Jerusalem. And this won't be a magic trick. He's saying the temple is going away for good. A massive nine-story structure That size-wise would cover 35 football fields. This temple, which meant far more to these Jews than what the Statue of Liberty, the White House, and about any other monument you can add together makes up, would mean to us as Americans. You see, this temple was the proof for hundreds of years, the singular proof that God had favored this people. I want us to try to appropriate, to take in how these Jewish disciples would be having their minds completely exploded right now. Jesus is prophesying that with something that would be entirely unfathomable to you and to your nation. The temple's end is coming, and it's certain. Children, I want to encourage you to see if you can count out the number of times when I read this text, Jesus is going to use the word will. And when Jesus says the word will, it's not only about the future, what's coming. When Jesus says the word will, it is certain. Let us read now from Luke chapter 21, verses 5 to 24. Now hear the word of our God. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus, said, 
As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land, and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. Our time is short. Make something of this moment, Lord. Change our hearts, work in us, help us to see what you mean to teach. Let us not fall into the trap of looking at only what this text means to us, but what it means and how you mean for us to understand it, that we might actually profit from it to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to invite back any of you whose eyes began to glaze over as I was reading this text. I'm actually sensitive to what is happening to many of us right now in our own moment in history. There's a recent cartoon that I saw where an alien has landed on earth and he leaves his flying saucer and a human being says to him simply, hey, to which the alien responds, are you not shocked? And the human looks at him and says, man, I got a lot going on lately. (laughs) The point being made is that a global pandemic, collapsing economies, the threat of nuclear war, and so much more has left all of us to the saturation point. We are in a flood of anxiety in 2022. And often unable to muster up much reaction to all the weirdness going on in our world today, even if weirdness came in the form of an alien invasion. 
This has caused many of us to constrict our circles of concern, to escape into manageable places in our lives, whatever that may be, to hunker down into survivalist mode, to try not to make sense of anything way too big and too great and too marvelous for us. Hunter S. Thompson once quipped, when the going gets weird, the weird turns pro. I suspect that many of us are pros right now as we come to Jesus' words of coming judgments, coming disasters, prophecies of the last days, or eschatology, as us theological people would like to say. If I preached this five years ago, the scenes that Jesus described here might have left some of us more rattled than, than now. There's plenty here to cause us to lose sleep, right? Wars, natural disasters, famines. Maybe this text won't have that impact because of anxiety saturation of our day. You'll see what Jesus describes here, maybe like that Ellis Island crowd. Liberty's gone, that's scary, but you know what? Doesn't seem to have impacted me in my seat right now any more than those Russian invaders, you know, that I saw pictures of in Ukraine. It's not impacting me. Let's not take up that posture. Let's do something different this morning with the help of God. I want you to ask and truly try to consider how it would be if you were a disciple hearing Jesus say this to you, the first audience, hearing that the end, the end of the temple and their whole world as they knew it was drawing near. The countdown had begun. I want to encourage us to do some empathetic listening where you get out of your own head for a minute and imagine what it would be like to be someone else and experience bad news hitting you. We have a very a tendency to be very me-centered, have a me-centered approach to life and to the scriptures. What does this say to me? How is this useful for my life today? Friends, it is not good to be the center of the universe. That will uh, lead you down the wrong road and road quite quickly, and especially when you come to passages like this. Jesus is actually answering the disciples' question in verse 5, prompted by his temple prophecy that's going away. Who is the you Jesus is talking to here? It's not you, at least not in the first place. It's the disciples. I say that to you as intelligent people so you don't make the error that so many other people have in the past. Churches I grew up in use this text and ones like it to explain all the current events going on in the world. I could go into great detail about how wrong folks have got it, but that only distract away from what we need to be focused on. Jesus is addressing his disciples with a tremendous tragedy coming their way. So let's first step into their sandals insofar as we're able, and then see what he has to show us about our own day. That's the first preface I want to make. The second is, Jesus is speaking this authoritatively, but not uncaringly. He's speaking it authoritatively, but not uncaringly. Or this week, in this week in Jerusalem, this week in Jerusalem, remember chapter 19, Jesus rode into Jerusalem weeping over the city and the judgment that was to come. Chapter 20 began with him doing what? Preaching the gospel in the temple, seeking to save the lost. This means Jesus was telling people who had lost their way they could, they could be found. They could be rescued. He was reading from the Old Testament. What does it mean to preach the gospel for Jesus? He was showing how all the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to him and his work. 
the holy God who made them had sent his own son in the flesh to take away their sins. They could repent, turn, and be forgiven. And he's preaching this when he is only maybe a day or two away from his own judgment, the cross. How bad are our sins against the holy God? It required the Son of God to come to earth to have his hands and feet pierced, his blood shed, and God's holy wrath poured on him. So when we hear Jesus declaring judgment to come on the earth, this is coming from one who has riches of kindness, forbearance, and patience, who came seeking to lead a people to repent so they could be saved. If you're new to Christianity or you're exploring it, I'm glad you're here. Who Jesus is, is the most important question of your life. And the answer matters for eternity. I hope you'll find a burning desire to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, to know God, to touch him, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to actually do things that really matter in this day, and to do it as part of a community, joined together in an alien unity, an otherworldly unity. Now, to repent means to stop trusting our own heart, our own urges, and not live our lives like that, but to start trusting him and being obedient to him. And our hearts are by nature opposed to Jesus' rule. We actually saw this in the last few weeks in chapter 20. As Jesus was preaching the gospel, religious leaders, one after another, a group came attacking him again and again, and Jesus showed his authority. Every last mouth was stopped by Jesus. Imagine now being a disciple and watching. You've just seen Jesus ride into Jerusalem as a king. He is proclaiming his authority. He headed straight to the temple. He went toe-to-toe with every religious heavyweight there. And he's the last man standing. It was like a Bruce Lee movie, one after another, and he's the last man standing. It would be an exciting time. Jesus has taken charge in Jerusalem in the temple. Then there's this strange scene where Jesus goes and watches the offerings being given. And you have thousands of people. Remember, they have these big tunnel funnels that they pour the money in. These rich people just pouring gobs of money. One after another. Look how much money. Look how great I am. And then you have this poor widow who has only two coins to rub together. Plink, plink. Jesus says, check her out. That's what I'm talking about. This is actually a very key moment. By the way, after they leave the temple, I think Judas gets it. First thing Judas does is he goes and sells Jesus out at this point. What would you think as a disciple about the point Jesus is making? As he ignores the big givers and praises Mrs. Plink Plink. Money that makes the world go round sure doesn't impress Jesus. What is outwardly impressive is not proof of God's favor. And apparently that includes the very place you're standing in. Verse 5, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Imagine being a disciple. Uh, Jesus, we've kind of had enough of the whole poor widow, you know. Let's talk about these incredible stones. Look at this. I mean, these stones are ginormous. Maybe one would fill up this whole sanctuary. They were incredible. 
this whole temple, it was made of marble, had gold, it had all kinds of carvings in it. During Herod's reign, he had expanded the temple. He had made it beautiful. This was the joy of every Jew. As you came to Jerusalem, they called it like a mountain of snow because it would be so reflecting white as you came down the hill to see the temple. It would be wonderful to watch your rabbi having taken power and charge in the temple. You'd be imagining a great future, right? Jesus with words of wisdom for everyone. Jesus with supernatural power. It's the dawning of an old day and Jesus is over there and he's pulled out the nuclear option. The days will come when there will not be one stone that will not be thrown down. A triple will statement promising that your temple is going to be entirely obliterated. By the way, that's exactly what will happen about 40 years from now in 70 AD. Friend, you've often said, you've heard it said that the church is not the building. We hear that all the time, don't we? The church is the people. Here's where God declares the location change. Man will be the new dwelling place of God. Once this temple had been the one place on earth where God dwelt, now the Holy Spirit has been poured out so everywhere a believer is, the presence of God is. But for these disciples, this was all they knew. They would be staggered. You realize that? All the ceremonies, all the worship, all the sacrifices had taken place in this temple for centuries. This was the heartbeat of the nation, the place everyone identified with. Jesus, what do you mean? The temple gone? In rubble? There's no modern equivalent that you and I can take a hold of here. Not even the fall of the Twin Towers, as awful as that was, that does not even begin to compare Jesus is saying nothing less than the entire Mosaic age, the entire Old Testament, everything going away. Verse 7. They actually ask the question, of course, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? They ask two questions. When will this happen? What are going to be the signs, the road markers that tell us, oh, we're getting really close? And he answers, verse 8. See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Don't go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Jesus doesn't answer right away. He starts off with two warnings. First, not to be led astray by false messiahs. We might be surprised. Why this warning? But Jesus actually knew, and there would come many false teachers, early church, trying to lead the disciples and others astray. And yes, there's application for us here today. We may shake our heads, if you remember David Koresh and his followers, or Jim Jones. We may shake our heads, these false prophets, and you see them on the TV predicting the end of the world. Oh, we won't get fooled. Friends, Jesus' warning is for you. We are all prone to be led astray, especially when the things start to become crashing down around you. Joel, how am I prone to be led astray? Well, when your world starts to fall down, some of us are going to be captivated by a leader's charisma more than their Christ-likeness. Some are attracted more by ability than by humility. 
Some are intrigued by intelligence rather than integrity. Friends, do not set your hopes on intelligence, gifts, talents, abilities of any leader. They will hinder your devotion to Jesus and they will lead you away. That's actually why I encourage you to be in your Bibles every day, all the time. Seeking Jesus to know him every day. Don't leave your soul care solely to me. Read your Bible. See who Jesus is. See if what I'm saying is true. Second warning gives Jesus gives is not to be terrified when you hear about wars and revolutions, riots that threaten to undo the world. Jesus says to his disciples, expect this. The nations will rage, but that does not mean the end. He goes on in verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And Jesus was right in this day. You can look it up in history yourself. Wars, natural disasters, famines. Let's pause on great signs from heaven. What's that about? What would you hear if you're not an American in 2022, but a disciple hearing about great signs from heaven? You'd be hearing the Old Testament. Actually, they'd be hearing the Bible because they didn't have the New Testament yet. They knew their scriptures. Isaiah 13.10 says this, The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. What's Isaiah talking about? Sounds like the end of the world. No. He's actually talking about God bringing judgment on the Babylonians by means of the Medes and Persians. You'll find languages about like this in Joel 3.15 as well, talking about Jerusalem's destruction. These prophets are not referring to the end of history, period. But judgments, that means the end of certain peoples and nations. Oh, and by the way, what will happen in just a day or two when Jesus is hanging on the cross? The sun will be blotted out. They will see signs from heaven. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't be terrified. You're going to see some stuff in your day. But it's not the end of all things. Don't be terrified. There's application for us too. We see the war in Ukraine. See cities decimated. Flooding in Pakistan. 10 million people displaced from their homes. Hurricane Ian. 50 mile swath right through Florida. We're seeing some stuff, aren't we? <laughs> We're saturated in it. Let's not start building personal little arcs to hide in, to avoid the flood, okay? Jesus says, don't be terrified. So even though Jesus is addressing these disciples in their day in the first place, there's important things for us as disciples as well. Jesus is saying to us, don't be fooled and don't be fearful. Don't be deceived and don't be disheartened. Don't be tricked. And don't be terrified. You see, Jesus' people are to be the one people on the planet who have perspective, who are perceptive, and who have poise. And, now speaking of these disciples, they're to be prepared for persecution and for pain. Verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you'll be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. 
For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair from your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Now notice we just moved back in time here. Jesus prefaces this, verse 12, but before all this. So what Jesus said before, all that before, comes after what Jesus says here. You need to keep these things in order. Jesus says, guys, you are going to be persecuted and imprisoned and placed before leaders. And we saw this exactly, just exactly this in our Acts study we did a few years ago. After Jesus was raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit was given the apostles, they began preaching the gospel. And in no time at all, they are brought before leaders to be questioned for preaching in Jesus' name. At any point, did you see anything like they're trying to figure out what are we going to say to them? No, they didn't meditate on it at all. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and speaks boldly that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone and the leaders are just astonished. These are ordinary unschooled dudes. How in the world are they able? And then they note, oh, they were with Jesus. Jesus had given them a mouth. We see this with Stephen as well. God gives him boldness. And again and again, opponents are unable to withstand their wisdom or to contradict them. Persecution and pain comes after that first time in the when they're brought before leaders. In Acts 4, they're threatened. In Acts 5, they're beaten. Acts 6, Stephen is in prison. Acts 7, he's stoned to death. Acts 8, Saul's ravaging the church. And on and on and on. And all 12 disciples minus one. Or minus two with Judas. All 12 are martyred. Only John doesn't die. Do you not see what Jesus is doing in this speech? He is preparing them and he's also showing them how the kingdom of God is going to advance. Jesus is saying to them, this is the plan, guys. This is your opportunity to witness. You're going to be my witnesses and you're going to suffer for my sake for the gospel. When it comes, they're not to be surprised as though something strange were happening to them. Rather, they are to be assured and stand tall. Not one hair from your head will perish. Really, Jesus? Not one hair. These guys are getting their heads lopped off and not one. Must not always be so literal and miss the big picture. <clears throat> I mean, that actually probably wouldn't mean much to disciples. I imagine a few were probably follically challenged. <laughs> no, the point is we are safe in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is why the resurrection is such a crucial doctrine in our day. We have eternal life in Christ. It only gets better. From here, if it is literal, this is a wonderful blessing to any disciple who's follically challenged. In heaven, there's going to be beautiful hair for all of eternity. That's the point. Okay, my exegesis may be a bit off, but eternal life gained is going to be glorious. That is the point. You are safe in Jesus Christ, no matter what comes in this world. There's a lot of words here for us as well. Now, I wish the word was that I never had to do sermon prep or meditate beforehand what I was going to say that you know I step in the pulpit and God would just download the sermon into my head 
That's not Jesus' point here. In fact, pastors who don't pray and prep are lazy. They're prideful or they're worse. Now, Jesus is actually, what's going on here is Jesus is moving something into view. He's moving something into view here. See, you and I and these disciples, we're like that audience on Ellis Island. We're prone to be fooled by illusion. I may be spoiling this, but actually David Copperfield didn't disappear, didn't remove the Statue of Liberty. The entire audience was on a platform with hydraulics underneath that rotated them. When David Copperfield raised up the curtain, he then distracted the audience with loud music, music that kept them from realizing that the, feet, that the floor underneath them was being rotated a few degrees. And so when the curtain went up, Lady Liberty is actually hidden behind one of those big pillars. <clears throat> I bring that up because, friends, one of the great lies of our day that you hear from pulpits everywhere in Elkhart and all over is that Christians have better lives on this world than non-believers. They turn on the music. They get you excited. They rotate the floor that you're on. They drop the curtain. Become a Christian. Get baptized. It's great. That when you become a Christian, your life gets easier, better. You prosper. We're told that pain-free, happy life is the freedom God is offering. And our encouraged culture loves it. They encourage us. And what we're doing, what they're doing, is we're cheering on Jesus. Jesus, go to the cross. Get us a better life. Yay, yay, go, Jesus. Go get crucified for us. So we get glory. But what Jesus is doing is, he is rotating something different into view. Like Copperfield, Jesus knows that our liberty can be so easily lost, and it has been. And God gave the temple as a pointer to the coming freedom that would come. Jesus came in order to make that disappear, and from now on, because the temple was not the place where they found freedom, not ultimately. And Jesus rotates it so that we can see where true freedom is found, and he drops the curtain and true liberty comes into view because there's the cross. The cross of Christ. He's going to the cross as the true temple to be the final sacrifice so we don't need just one temple, a stone temple. In fact, we can become the temple because we are now declared sin-free in Jesus Christ and we can receive the Spirit. And now worship can happen anywhere on earth, even in the wilds of Indiana on the other side of the world, what it would be to these disciples. So long as we have one thing in view as his disciples, the cross, and not just Jesus' cross, our own cross. Friends, our world, our cities, our neighbors, our friends, our loved ones, they are in bondage to sin, death, and the devil. They're under an illusion. It is only through the suffering of the cross that we can find liberty. And by living that out, by caring, that we can actually witness what freedom looks like to our friends and family and neighbors. So we take up our own cross and follow Jesus. That's how we find liberty. It's also how we bear witness in a world that needs it so much. By standing firm in suffering. <clears throat> and we need to get this. Because Jesus doesn't want us to be under an illusion this morning or disillusioned by what we see going on in our world. Because pain, heartaches, 
attacks on our persons, trials, family, close brothers may turn against you. Temptations will come. If we don't get this, what Jesus is saying here, what are we going to be prone to think when suffering and misery comes our way? God has forgotten me. God is not faithful. No. Jesus says, no, expect that. It's actually proof that I'm with you and that you can stand firm as a witness to your neighbors who have nothing. No hope, no liberty, no freedom. Friends, God is faithful through suffering, through rejection. And it's by standing firm in suffering, just like Jesus did, that we actually get the resurrection glory that he opened up for us. We stand firm, but not always. Let's quickly look at these lax verses, which are actually the answer to the disciples' question. Verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. <clears throat> for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. promise you Jesus was not saying this with a smile on his face but in order for the cross to come in view the temple must come down and also Jerusalem all those who would rebuild it Jesus describes a day when Titus will come with the Roman army in 69 and 70 the horrors of that day were immense there would be no joys of motherhood in those days thousands upon thousands Josephus, I think, says it's in the millions. I think he exaggerates, but it was awful. And Jerusalem has never recovered. The temple has never been rebuilt. You got just one little section, the Wailing Wall. That's all that's left. Jerusalem today remains trampled underfoot and will remain so until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Paul will speak about this in Romans 11. What did these Christians, these disciples do when they saw the armies? They obeyed Jesus and they fled. A historian named Eusebius talks about how all these Christians knew it was coming and they fled and went to a place called Pella and they were spared. Jesus is saying there is a time when disciples are to stand firm before their enemies, but there is a time for a strategic retreat. This calls for wisdom. We've been talking about this a lot lately. I know Christians who want to win every battle for the sake of the gospel. But Jesus says there are times to retreat for the sake of the gospel. There are times like the days of Lot where we cannot remain where we were. And we can't look back at those illusions that promise us liberty or safety or happiness. I'll close with saying right now we're in the midst of a transition from a nation built on Christian principles to a very secular culture. And we have choices to make about when to fight and when to retreat. 
Friends, strategic retreat is in order in many places. The giving up of our freedoms can be for the sake of the gospel. I think our biggest obstacle may be that we don't know how to minister from the margins. Christian privilege is a real thing. Funny thing is, talking about China earlier, I've been reading actually a little bit about this. In places like China, I quoted this last week, the pastors are more afraid of prosperity than persecution. I was reading about a pastor, a Chinese pastor, praying for persecution to come because the more prosperity comes, the more the people lose the gospel. The more they have safety, the more they don't trust in Jesus. Praying for persecution, I heard about this in 2017. It happened when they began to clamp down once again on the Christians. Here's not so much a sermon, but probably a conversation for us to be having, a constant conversation as our culture changes. I think we may have amazing opportunities to shine like stars as Christians in our day to see what the missionaries do in other parts of the world, even as a people who have no power at all but only the gospel. I think we have amazing opportunities in front of us that previous generations in America never had. So let's figure it out. And let's do it together in community. We have to do it in community, whether we stand firm or whether we're retreating strategically. We need to be in one another's lives, making sure that no one is left behind or being rotated in a wrong direction, being tricked into following a false freedom. You see, we are the new temple of God. We are living stones, as Peter said, being constructed. Jesus is building us together. And though the enemy and the world will want to tear us down, We need not be afraid. The enemy cannot win. And even if we were to face serious suffering in our day, or even death for the sake of the gospel, that's good news. Because all our enemies can do is what we just sang, hasten the day when our faith will be sight. We'll look and we will see the one who has loved us all the way to the cross, loved us more and better than anyone else. And one look at Jesus Christ will show you that all the illusions of this age were not worth your life. I'll close with a quote from Tony Ranke. Like a smartphone screen made blank by the rays of direct sunshine, one day we shall see Christ's face. On that day, all the vain spectacles in this world of illusions and all the pixelated idols of our age will finally and forever dissolve away in the radiance of his splendor. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you that you have made peace with us with the cross of Christ and that you have given us liberty to live as those who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for sin, but rather to live as those who are being obedient to your will, those who don't who won't have to stand at the end of their lives and look back and say, I satisfied all the urges of my life. That was my, no, that we can stand before you having been obedient, having sought first your kingdom and hear those wonderful words. Well done, good and faithful servant. We pray for our community around us, our neighbors, our friends, those who are far from you and are under illusion. And we ask that you might give us opportunities to witness the gospel before them. And if that means suffering, I pray that these words will come to mind, that we need not be terrified, that in fact, 
we need not be fooled that in fact all of this is your way of witnessing the gospel before a world that needs to see it so much. Will you have mercy on us? We help us to leave here loving Jesus more and seeing our privilege to participate in the greatest rescue mission in all of human history. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.